0: You're listening to World Building for Masochist.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because historiography is so much more fun when you add dragons.
2: I'm Elsa Honason. I'm Cass Morris.
0: I'm Marcia Ryan Mareska.
2: I'm Rowena Miller. And this is Episode 33, Disability and Inclusion.
0: Welcome, friends. How are you all, everybody? We have a beautiful, wonderful, amazing episode here for you today with an incredible guest star. Elsa, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, sure. Um, my name is Elsa Hunesson. I'm a deafblind hurricane in a vintage dress, and uh, you can find me. Yep. <laughs> you can find me in a couple different places. You may have seen my work as the nonfiction editor of Uncanny Magazine, where I also was the nonfiction editor for Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction. I recently was part of the writing team behind Serial Box's Marvel's Jessica Jones Playing with Fire. I have a memoir coming out next year called Alone in the Light from Simon & Schuster, which is about what happens when able-bodied people decide to write blind people. And well, that doesn't go over so well most of the time. And you can see me next month on September 9th at the Seattle Town Hall, where I'll be speaking with Alice Wong as part of the promotion for
2: the Disability Visibility Anthology. Should be pretty fun. Awesome. Those all sound amazing. So if you don't already follow Elsa on Twitter, you should follow her because um, it's it's an awesome feed. I always enjoy what you have to say, um, especially when it's um, research of old vaudeville and um, and other acts that you had up the other day that was hilarious. Well, that is
1: actually what my master's is in. I did, I did uh, my master's thesis on burlesque and obscenity law, and um, it's a fun time. <laughs>
2: So we'll have to have Elsa back for um, for an episode on, like,
0: on burlesque and, ins- on burlesque and, obscenity.
2: and obscenity and putting kittens places. And anyway, um, so we should launch into our episode.
0: <laughs> that was open-ended. Sorry, I lost it there. It's just, it's gone. I lost it. Okay.
2: Control is I'm lost. i <laughs> <play> without us. <laughs> Might be a record. Oh,
0: we're talking.
2: (laughs) Where (laughs) are we going If we're going to (laughs) talk disability and inclusion in fantasy, I feel like a place to start is maybe acknowledging that fantasy has long had a bit of a problem in this area, maybe a little understatement there, but are there any tropes or things that crop up in fantasy again and again that just really drive you up a wall? when it comes to disability?
1: You know, it's it's there's this really broad one wherein, um, so you can't see me because this is a podcast, but I have occluded, an occluded cataract. And what that means is that my right eye is completely covered over by a cataract and it's mostly white and aqua and I don't really have a pupil there either. Now, if you're in a fantasy book or a movie or a TV show and you have eyes like mine, you're evil. Just straight up, you're evil or you're dead or you can see the future, or you can see ghosts. But like, granted- Or all like, the you know, above. You're, you're not, it's not a good thing. And I'm pretty tired in fantasy of just seeing disability used as like a shorthand for evil or spooky. That's kind of the big trope that I see in fantasy a lot is that disability is sort of a shorthand visual tri- trick.
2: Yes, I would totally agree with that. And I think that shorthand is a really good way to put it because I think it's also not infrequently like the the bad guy's origin story and that's all you've got is there's some kind of disability or even sometimes like delving into almost like a grotesquery kind of element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there's there's definitely some disfigurement stuff that goes on there
1: too like, you know, they have a nasty looking scar on their face but even disfigurement is, um Sort of a part of the disability umbrella. I saw somebody tweet today actually that like disability is sort of the large um umbrella for a variety of things in the same way that POC is an umbrella for a variety of communities. And so I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Like you talk about disability, you're talking about disfigurement, you're talking about mental illness, you're talking about physical disability, you're talking about deafness, you're talking about invisible disability or chronic illness. So there's sort of a wide spectrum.
3: I think it's a good thing for people to to remember and be aware of is that there are all these different facets, facets to disability. And you can be doing one thing well, but have totally messed up something else at the same time, if you're not thinking about that full umbrella.
1: 100%.
2: Yeah. And I think that even just societally getting to the point of um, understanding and recognizing invisible disability is something that we are still you know, beh- behind the loop on in a lot of facets. And I think that fantasy is one of those spots that talking about engaging with and including invisible disability is is not always common. Um, mm-hmm. And when you think about how common invisible disabilities are, you know, it's, it's surprising right. that we, um, maybe it's not surprising actually, but um, <laughs> we could have hoped that we could have delved into that a little bit more by now. I mean, this is my surprised face. <laughs> um,
1: you know, it's funny because one of the things that I say a lot off panels, too, is that fantasy actually is where we should be seeing more disabled characters, not less. You know, if you're looking at a fantasy world that's based in, I don't know, the medieval era, like a lot of fantasy is, or if you're doing some kind of steampunky fantasy world that's the Victorian era, um, there are a lot of disabled people because we didn't have the medical solutions to problems that we do now. So you would have a lot more people who had congenital rubella syndrome, which is what I have. You know, there's a lot of different ways for people to become disabled in a time period when you can't fix it. So actually, you should have more disabled characters in your fantasy,
2: not less. Yes, just, I mean, there's sheer number of accidents that people yeah. had that, you know, you break an arm now, you're you're probably fine. And that arm is probably going to heal or have surgery on it. And, you know, in a few years, maybe it hurts before it rains. And that's that's your extent. But, you know, 200, 300 years ago, you have a bad break. We don't have surgery. We don't have that option. And that extends to all kinds of other things. You're absolutely right. Something I think about
3: often as a, a nearsighted But sighted person is how much more difficult my life would have been before we had the ability to um, make spectacles and contact lenses. Oh, my life would would have been
1: impossible. Yeah, I mean,
3: like (laughs) I'm sorry, very close work. But I mean, I would have been eaten by wolves probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certain
1: eras. (laughs) Because I, I would make friends with the wolves and have them be my guide wolves because that's you you know know, that's a story. That's a plan. (laughs) That's a story.
3: There's a plot right there. (laughs) I like it. And I love it, um, but yeah. Also thinking about the things that now we have adjustments for and accommodations for that in history we, we might not have, but fantasy could also have these accommodations or different accommodations because magic. Uh, yeah, that's just that's a good a good way to think of it. I think is is thinking about what is both more likely and what is more available in those contexts.
0: So sometimes just oh, it's solved with magic can be its own realm of problematic as well.
1: Yeah. So the other trope I really don't like is this whole magic cure bullshit. Oh, am I allowed to swear? I forgot to. Ask. Oh, I'm allowed to fuck swear. yes. We're, we're,
3: yeah. Fuck yes, we're big
1: on it. Okay, good because I really can't not swear when I start talking about magical cures. It's just not <laughs> excellent. Um, excellent. Listen, listen, all of you able-bodied writers out there thinking I have this blind character, it's really fucking hard to write a blind character, so I'm just gonna send them to a wizard and make them sighted. No, that's not how this works. I find that's a lot of the problem is that people put themselves into this box of, well, I don't know how to write a blind character for more than 200, for, for more than five, five, 10 pages in a 200 page book, so I'm just gonna fix it. Um, thanks, George R.R. Martin. Uh, Arya Stark could have stayed blind, continued to be a blind swordswoman. And I mean, the blind swordswoman trope is actually one of my favorites in fantasy. It's it's one of the few times where blind characters get to be awesome and not just scary. I mean, they're still scary because they will kill you. But... (laughs) Scary
0: in the fun way.
1: Scary in a fun way. I mean, I'm also scary in a fun way. I'm a blind woman who has swords. Um, But this is... This is the thing, right? Like, you have the opportunity to engage with this trope and actually make it interesting, but then you cure them because it's easier for them to continue being cited later. So that's one of the, the ways in which magic can get used badly. Now, you can use magic for funsies for other things. I mean, I'm sure there's got to be a way to build, <clears throat> I don't know, magical tools for deafness Like, you know, you've enchanted your house so that every time someone walks up to your door, it's basically a smart house chime, but, you know, fairies blink in the gas lamps. I don't know. You get the point. There's ways of solving these problems and creating smart houses out of magic. That's one example. Another example would be, you know, witches familiars. Isn't it fun that you have these cats who you, your witch can talk to? Wouldn't it be more fun if they could help your blind witch do things? Your familiar knows exactly where the Eye of newt
2: is. Unfortunately, since it's a cat, it just pushes it off the table. But these are problems <laughs> that you can overcome.
3: <laughs> I think what that gets to is the difference between an accommodation and a cure.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: and And, you know, one is something that does not destroy the identity, but is a part of it and the other takes away that part of the identity is that sort of like is that what you'd consider the difference sort of between
1: accommodation and cure sort of so i mean i guess even before we can talk about the difference between accommodation and a cure i need to talk about what it is about my disability is a part of me yeah i i am born with a disability so for me i don't think of my body as ever having been anything other than disabled so i'm not gonna I don't want a cure. I don't want to change who I am. It would be too complicated. That's the other thing about magical cures is that it assumes that you'll just be fine with what's happened. But like I've been deafblind my entire life. You give me sight out of my right eye, my brain needs to rewire itself. I won't know how to read, write, walk, whatever. So unless if your magical cure includes, and it also just makes your entire body understand, how is that going to work? Um, but I mean, even in Harry Potter, you know, the magical cure for things like I don't know, broken bone, you take Skelegrow. That's painful. It takes time. So why are these magical cures, you know, finger snap? So my disabled body is part of my identity. It's part of who I am. Some people who have an acquired disability, who have been disabled as an adult, may not feel that way. That might be a different conversation. But for me, it's part of my body. So. I wouldn't, what I want is things that make it easier for me to engage with the world using the body that I have. That's why I have a guide dog or a white cane instead of just getting LASIK, because it's a part of my body. And I do consider my white cane a part of my body. That is an extension of who I am. I do consider my guide dog, I mean, he's not really an extension of my body, but he's more like just an assist. You know, again, going back to the idea of a familiar, it's an extremely helpful creature, so I think an accommodation is something that helps you adapt to the world without taking, without forcing you to conform to the world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. That's, yes.
3: That's a yeah. wonderful way to put it, and I think those are. You said a lot of things that I hope our our listeners will remember and hang on to because you said them very well and very neatly delineated.
0: Yeah, I, w- I was going to say I think. Part of the problem with the idea of the magical cure is the idea that the cure, a cure is the goal, and that is not necessarily going to be the case for a lot of characters if you're doing them in an accurate, appropriate way.
2: So a question, considering all of the options that exist in fantasy and the fact that a lot of fantasy is about imagining things differently than they are, why do you think that fantasy has such a hard time with disability?
1: Well, I think some of it has to do with the fact that fairy tales are such a big part of our sort of construction of fantasy. And if you read Amanda LeDuc's book, Disfigured, she takes apart the fantasy genre when it comes to disability, disability and really interrogates how disability is integral to the fairy tale experience, but also how disability is used as a morality underpinning in fairy tales so we go back to this idea of like evil, disabled disability as a you know shorthand for evil in fantasy. I think that's part of where that comes from is that you know, you're being we've had all of these morality tales sort of shown that say, oh hey, you look at this person, they're evil, you know it. I think that's some of where it comes from. And I also think it's just that we have these perceptions of the old times not having disabled people in them. Now, that means that urban fantasy has no excuse and needs to get the fuck over itself. But (laughs) this this is kind of where I think it comes from, at least in terms of the medieval or even 19th century fantasy. Where I think people are thinking, oh, well, if you were disabled in the 1500s, you'd just be dead, which is wrong. But also, I see why they get there, because history is terrible.
2: (laughs) This is accurate. That's true. You know, I feel like there's also so much... um, you know, in in a genre that prides itself on imagination, so much lack of imagination in terms of different stories and how would different people embody those same stories. So when you have tropes like, you know, the swordsman or, you know, the army or the ranger, and this is the, the story that you're telling and they are doing something that's very physical and a lot of fantasy is very physical. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you introduce the concept of disability. It's like, there's this block of, well, how would that, how, that's just not realistic. When you even have people saying, well, it's not even realistic for a woman to be a warrior because they're smaller than men. So that doesn't work. It's like there's this block of, of have a little imagination. People are, you know, we have our flaws, but ingenuity is something that we tend to do pretty well at. And people mm-hmm. figure things out that would, you know allow those stories to happen in in different ways.
0: I I was going to say, and it's fantasy, so just play with it. I mean, there was just a big blow up on Twitter last week of like the the battle wheelchair. We were like, oh, no, that's unreal. Who cares? It's fun. (laughs) Have fun.
1: (laughs) Well, one, who cares? Sure. But another thing is, look, adaptability and ingenuity are disability survival tactics. Right. Like, look. I don't get around because I'm, I don't get around because I don't have ways to hack my world. I get around because I'm smart enough and I've had to spend some time figuring out how to navigate the world. All disabled people have to do this. Look, combat wheelchair, absolutely going to happen. You know why? Because there are people who are wheelchair users who fence better than I do. And I'm a pretty good fencer. But I highly recommend Googling that on YouTube because it's fierce. Um, the thing is like disabled people have to figure out how to navigate the world because the world is built by able-bodied people who haven't thought about what it's like to get around with a disability. Most able-bodied people I meet who are just random strangers, not people who know me on like even an internet level, but total strangers be like, Oh my God, I can't imagine living like you do. How do you do it? It's like, well, very carefully and with a lot of spite. Uh, But I, you know, I've figured things out. I don't have depth perception. So when I'm going down a flight of stairs, one of the things I do is I look to see where the shadows are because the shadows are always slightly off of the steps. I can usually kind of navigate my way down by figuring out where they are. Also, I like banisters a lot. Those are useful. If I can find an elevator, that's slightly better, but that's not always the case. Um, You know, you figure out tricks. You figure out ways to do things. And you can see that in memoirs by disabled people. I mean, read Helen Keller's memoir, it's incredible, really developing her own language because she, she has to like tell her family what she needs by using home signs. Every disabled kid has home sign. This isn't uncommon.
2: People adapt, it's what we do. So we've kind of like crapped on fantasy, um, but I'm curious if there are any books that you feel do disability well, um, especially Elsa, but anyone else who has thoughts on books that have, have actually done a good job incorporating that. So it's, mo- it's ur-
1: urban fantasy, but Michelle Baker's Borderline and the subsequent books in that series are really great because they do meld fantasy and disability really, really well. Um, Seanan McGuire's books also have done a really great job of that Uh, I think probably my favorite example in her books is definitely the mermaid in a wheelchair sequence there's an entire chase scene in one of the Toby Day books involving a mermaid using a wheelchair it's great so those are definitely examples it is funny you know Game of Thrones as much as I am giving it crap Like, there are a lot of disabled characters in Game of Thrones, and there are disabled people in those books that are actually in power. So while I have major problems with a lot of it, I also am like, yeah, and there's also like Eamon Targaryen, who's an actual blind character who's doing just fine. Tyrion Lannister is a a disabled person who faced ableism from his family, and we actually see it in the books. I, so, like, there are things that I think he gets right, too.
3: Eamon Targaryen is one I really love, because even though we don't get his point of view within the books, we see Sam, who is working with him, and who sort of realizes how Eamon has structured his life to account for his blindness. And and Sam does what he can to help. He starts figuring out, because he's a bright character, he starts figuring out, I can, I can help this, and I need to not do this thing that gets in his way. I need to not interrupt the things he's doing that are working just fine. Um, so it's an interesting perspective that Martin gives us sort of in that in that dynamic with,
1: with Eamon. It's Sam is Eamon Targaryen's para. Like, that's, he's, he's his, he, it's his SSP. Like, <laughs> and there's moments in the TV show, too, where, like, at toward the end of the show, we actually see Bran has a page who's wheeling him around. Like, these things exist in that world building and I do like that a lot.
3: Yeah, Bran's wheelchair and then the the specialized saddles I also thought were really neat for both Tyrion and Bran. The design, like, and Martin doesn't have to tell us a lot about the design. He doesn't have to go into super details about how it works but he tells us that it exists and that someone has put thought and care into it.
1: Yeah, and that's something that I really like too is that there's an acknowledgement that it's a specialized device. like because a lot of the things that disabled people need are actually specialized devices. My guide dog has been trained, not for me specifically, but has been trained for the purpose of being a service dog. He has a harness. It's a specialized type of equipment. If you get a wheelchair, you're not buying a wheelchair off the rack. You're buying a wheelchair that is fitted to you. You may need a different cushion from someone else. A white cane is sized to you, but the- actually a really important one for those of you writing blind characters by the way um, a white cane is supposed to come up to your shoulder and I don't understand why most TV characters have them like at solar plexus level um, but think really carefully about the sizing and the characters <coughs> into an adaptive aid because they that actually does matter
2: I think it's interesting too that we live in a mass produced world where most of our stuff is coming off an assembly line. Most of the fantasies that we're writing are a more customized world. So, in some ways, you can play with that a bit more in terms of, you know, does your tailor know how to make clothes for you if you are not the same size or if you are missing a limb? Um, you know, does your saddler know how to make um, a saddle for someone who is disabled. And I think that, you know, you can kind of engage with that and play with it. And in some ways, a fantasy world can end up being more accommodating because you have these skills built into it in ways that our world does not have skills built built into it in the same way.
1: It's funny, in season one of Outlander, they actually do have a tailor scene like that too. Because the Laird in season one, when they're, the, you know, like Castle Leuch, he's disabled. And he like yells at the tailor because the tailor's like, I'm going to make sure that we can cover your legs and make it so no one knows you're disabled. And he gets very cranky. And it's like, yes, this is, this is what it
2: should be. Like, leave him alone. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like, you know, that kind of touches on another question I had, which is I think that we could define how the Western world thinks about and looks at disability and defines disability and defines what that means within our culture and world. Does a fantasy world have to be the same? And in what ways can a fantasy world understand disability differently?
1: So there's two theories of disability that kind of talk about modeling structures. Yes, we're about to jump into the hardcore disability theory part of this episode. Um, So there is the medical model, which is the idea that a disability is defined by what your diagnosis is, and therefore by the physical thing that has happened to you. So that would define me as someone with congenital rubella syndrome, and I'm deafblind, and I have a chronic pain condition based on the fact that I have scar tissue. Cool. So that's my body. That's what makes me disabled. Or you can look at it from the social model, which says that disability is, why, is what society makes it impossible for you to do. So in that case, I'm disabled not because of the things that have happened to my body, but because able-bodied people decided to not make it you know, possible for a blind person to get around a city without a car. You think that one stair is not a problem, and it's fine. And we can just lift you up out of your wheelchair and get you in the door that way. So you can start to think about your fantasy world building in terms of modeling. What does the society think disability means? Get even closer into some more theory. The modern perception of disability as we identify it now is only really from the industrial revolution because the industrial revolution is when we started looking at bodies and saying, what can this body do on a factory line? And can it do the exact same thing as the person next to it in order to follow this you know, specific mode of production and mass production. You go before the Industrial Revolution and things are a little bit more squishy. So think about it in terms of what's happened in the world and how people might look at bodies. Because I don't think in, I don't know, Austin Punk setting, where we don't have the Industrial Revolution, where we don't have mass production, that you know the eldest daughter in a bennett style household who was blind would actually be as much of an issue they would be like oh you can't do embroidery um why don't you go outside and help with the chickens like why don't why don't we have you do something that doesn't involve you stabbing yourself repeatedly in the finger and bleeding on all of the nice pieces of clothing we're making but I feel like things become more adaptable and also they don't have the medical language to diagnose her in the same way. So they're probably just going to say, okay, there's some things you can't do. Sure. Now there are still going to be stigma because, you know, stigma exists. And if you're basing it on historical fact, that's going to be different than if you're basing it on whatever you want, but that's where you kind of start to be able to say, well, how do I want this society to look at disability from a social or medical perspective?
2: And I think that was really, really vital what you said about considering people's bodies for what they can do and what they can produce within a society, because I feel like a huge part of how we think, sadly, about people in general, but especially when we start talking about disability um, in our current Society in the Western world is, you know, are you productive? Are you producing work? Are you able to make money and quote unquote support yourself? And this is somehow um, like <laughs> the only the only definition that we apply to that, and that doesn't have to be how it works.
1: Yes, this is where I say, and this is where we say, fuck the capitalist system. <laughs> Because what we're talking about is capitalism. Disability is disenfranchised by capitalism. And so if you are not world building a capitalist system, you are world building a socialist system, disability is not going to be at the same mm, disadvantage that you might see it in a capitalist system. Now, if you are building a rapidly capitalist world, then yes, you're going to have to deal with the fact that capitalism wildly disenfranchises disabled people and makes us very unhappy.
2: Especially industrialized capitalism rather than kind of the softer, older, um, I have one cow and I sell the milk, which isn't actually capitalism. And that always drives me nuts when you have that example, but um, we'll do another (laughs) economics episode sometime where we delve into that more.
1: I mean, and some disabled people were disenfranchised by serfdom. You know, if you if you can't pull in your share of the farm because you don't have a leg or an arm, you may not be treated very kindly by the lord of the manor. Or will your fellow serfs kind of pick up your slack and help you out? But right. that's the kind of stuff you have to
2: think about. Or maybe the fact that you don't have an arm leads everyone to realize that, oh, you know what, he's really good with the cows. We'll have him do that because he's better at that than, you know, John and John can go work in the fields and hey, we found a solution. But yes, the more industrialized you get, the harder the solutions are to find because people become parts rather than individuals in a lot of ways.
3: I think that's probably a good segue into one of the other things we were going to think about, which is how does the shape of society affect how disability is processed and either accommodated for or not? Does the size of the society matter? Does your tech level, you know, we talked a little bit about economics and tech level, um, but other things. How does your family unit affect how you may be able to accommodate for disability? How does your social safety net affect those things, um, depending on what you've built? And how can you build a world that does create these spaces for disabled characters?
1: So... I always think it's interesting to look at disability specifically from a class structure level, because that's where I think a lot of people really kind of miss opportunities. Um, I see a lot of fantasy assuming that all disabled people are poor, which, to be fair, Disability is something that will impoverish you if you live in a capitalist system where you have to pay for insurance and medical things. And if you live in the United States, like I do, you really don't like it because insurance gets more expensive the longer that you, you know, have a disability. Um, Hashtag vote in November. Uh, So, Basically, I think we miss out on opportunities when we don't put disabled people into higher class systems in fantasy. There are, I have not seen a princess who's blind or deaf. Not seen queens who are blind or deaf. I have not seen, and I tend to pick female-bodied characters for these things, mostly because I would like to see more disabled women in genre in general. We have seen disabled men in So in secondary world settings. Miles Verkosigan, I mean, that's science, it's space opera, but Miles Verkosigan is, you know, he's a well-born disabled man. He has a lot of privilege. He uses that privilege, but we don't have a lot of women in those situations. So that's part of why I like to use that example. Um, What happens when you are blind and you also have class privilege? Are you able to access things like the best healers in your country? Are you able to access protection? I mean, Bran has somebody to push his wheelchair around. Meanwhile, Arya Stark, you know, gets kicked out onto the side of the street, turns into a cat, ends up learning how to, you know, goes blind, learns how to fight people, Comes back and manages to take off her face. I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that happens to women when they become disabled. It it gets real weird. So I think when we add class structure, we actually get some interesting opportunities. Tyrion Lannister is disabled, but he also has power. He still faces ableism. he just experiences ableism differently. So I think you have the opportunity to kind of poke at what ableism looks like a little bit more when you stop subjugating disabled characters and you start giving them a little bit of agency. Actually, you should give them a lot of agency. But I think that's I think that's where you actually start getting more interesting choices.
2: I liked to cast how you mentioned family structures um, or um, small community structures maybe feeds into that too, because, um, I don't talk about this a lot. I I have chronic pain and I feel like a huge thing, um, that makes space for me is just having space and having time. And like, Mm -hmm. if I'm having a bad day, if I'm having a flare, like I need to go lay down, that's, that's what I need. So do I have a family or small community structure that can pick up my slack a little bit? And I can certainly on days I'm having a good day, I can pick up your slack all day long. That's fine. But if I'm having a bad day, do I have a family structure that is there to, you know, provide some backup? Or am I living in a 1950s nuclear household with a husband who's at work all day and two and a half kids? That I mean, it's a lot you. harder than if I'm living in a small community structure with other women who are able to, you know, yeah, I'll watch your kids go lay down or, you know, a husband who's also at home or we're working together and he can say, I got this today, or a wife who's saying I've got this today or however that works out.
1: I'll give you a real life example because I can. I mean, I'm I'm a deafblind woman who recently got divorced and the experience of getting divorced was really interesting in our current contemporary world because it was like, oh, I'm used to having somebody who can do things that are reliant on my sight. So when you start looking at labor in certain contexts, you start to understand what different kinds of labor look like for your characters. So dusting is a thing that I don't do or know how to do, or even notice that there is dust. So I suddenly have this this context where if I were in a community in a communal living situation, that might not be an issue. And somebody might notice that there's dust somewhere. But that also asks this interesting question of what's important to your community, right? If you're living in a fully blind society, does anybody care about the dusting? No, really. Does anybody care? Like, if we're in Jose Saramago's blindness, does everybody stop dusting? Probably. Yeah. So those community structures, when you start, say, in a fantasy world, even taking away ability on a community level, what happens? In a quiet place, which is horror, but I think that this is an interesting place to go to, their family structure is around the idea that they have a deaf child. So everybody speaks ASL, except for the tiniest one. That's a problem. Um, but when they when they have this farm set up, they do things like they lay sand on the ground for, for paths so that when you walk, your feet don't make noise, because noise is what's going to get you killed. And if this character who's deaf can't hear if she steps on something, she doesn't know that she's made a mistake. So you lay down soft you know, footing. You also set up a visual alarm so that you know when the monsters have shown up. These are the things that you start building as a community. You start making decisions about what causes safety to work, what causes you to be safer with your disability in place. And I think that's some of the stuff that we're talking about, right? It's not just how does your character get around in the world, it's how does your community adapt to you You can do it in contemporary fantasy you can do it in medieval fantasy but across the board you can start changing the way that your community adapts to disability and i think that's when you also get some interesting choices if your queen is a wheelchair user you're not going to have a lot of stairs
0: i was thinking there was a show on apple tv last year and i don't know I don't know if this is really good rep or not, but it was a show called C where the whole concept was that a disease made everyone blind. And so thus all of society had to adapt to that. And it showed a lot of those adaptations of how they, how their communities worked and how, how they made war when nobody saw and things like that. And I, I always feel like, there's a lot of things where I'm like, ooh, that's really interesting. I think that's well done. And then I talk to somebody and I'm like, oh, I was wrong. That was not well done at all. <laughs> and
1: I haven't watched it yet because I'm too afraid.
0: <laughs> like, my instinct is it was done with care, but I can't say that with anything resembling authority I mean, or accuracy.
1: Part of the problem for me is that sighted people don't convincingly play blind people well. So it's really challenging for me to watch TV where blind, where sighted people are pretending to be blind because it's like nails on a chalkboard.
0: I can, I can, I can definitely understand that. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think there is a lot, especially on a TV and movie level. I think there's a lot of well-meaning, poorly done stuff where it's like the intent is, oh, we're go- we're going to do this good, sensitive thing that shows this, and then, and that's where they fuck it up the most, you see. Um, <laughs> that, just, that, whole,
2: that whole road to hell thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> road to hell, paved with good
1: intentions, but also, I mean, we're on a video call right now, and you'll only be hearing this in audio, but my fellow podcasters can see that I am looking at the screen. I'm not glancing off into the distance. <laughs> not like... I don't have a blank facial expression. I have actually made several interesting face journeys over the process of recording this podcast. Blind characters in movies often have this, like, stare off into the distance, I can't really see you blank facial expression, which is what everybody assumes blind people look like, so it's really easy to weaponize. But um, that's not actually what (laughs) blind people look like. And so when I watch movies where blind people are being portrayed by sighted people and they're like, I'm blind, I speak in one monotone voice and I don't look at anyone. It's like, oh, my God, that's not how it works.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to loop back around before we hit the end of our time Um, to something that we kind of started to touch on at the beginning of the episode. Um, And I feel like we'd all have more to say, which is how to incorporate magic and second world fantasy world building and disability and inclusion and all of that together. Like how can that work together in ways that are not yucky, tropey?
1: Well, I think you start by not allowing your magic to be able to just fix people in an instant. And I know that that's really hard because you want magic to be able to do everything but every world build for magic has some constraints. And I think starting from a basis of you can't fix a disability actually helps because it means that you can't just do whatever you want to the human body, which also seems like a reasonable ethical choice to make. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, in Harry Potter, for example, even though we're not really, we're canceling JK, I think that there are some good ways to talk about it from that example. mad Moody has an adaptive device. Mad-Eye Moody is wearing a prosthetic eye that does cool stuff. Also consent violating stuff. That's a separate episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, consent and magic is a whole other topic, but You can develop adaptive aids that don't completely trash the disability. You know, you can have a character who's a wheelchair user who can actually just levitate their wheelchair. They don't need to do anything special to it. They just levitate the chair over some steps. You know, your blind character can enchant a book to read it to them. I actually think there's a lot of really interesting things to learn from modern technology that can be adapted to magic. You know, your white cane perhaps can talk back to you. That's gonna be a really snarky white cane, but you know, (laughs) I don't make the rules. Um, Your familiar will probably knock things off of the shelf and you're like, damn it, I needed that. Okay, now where do I find it? And your familiar will quietly snark at you while you feel around on the ground for that high of nude. But I think that there are ways to make choices actually based on what already exists, and then you make it magic. That's entirely doable. I mean, how cool would it be if you had a magical grimoire that just glowed and talked to you?
2: I think that's a really good point to keep in mind in terms of um, setting limits on your magic, because... I've always wondered with the, the magical cure kind of trope, like, have you thought this through of, like, what, if your magic can do that, what else is your magic doing? And do you have to have the consent of the person who it's being done to to do it? And and have you dealt with all the icky stuff that that could be applied to in in a could, world like I don't, I don't think we thought this through all the way. Is some
1: really icky implications if you can just make someone sighted? Like you can also make like you can warp their eyeballs. Like there's a lot of horrible things that you can do to people with that magic.
0: I'm just also thinking in terms of, are you thinking through all the consequences of what like curing one person could do? Like does that mean? like I, I often think about things where they use magic to like solve one problem in one place and then ignore it everywhere else. Mm-hmm. and and that's that seems very problematic also. But.
1: I mean, I have a question. What happens if we make me not deafblind? I have some real concerns about what happens if I'm allowed to drive a car, for example. <laughs> who Who can I harass if I have a car? For those of you who don't know me, I'm relatively well known in the science fiction community for terrorizing people when they make bad decisions. <laughs> disability representation. And if I had access to a car, I
3: would you, probably. You
0: could just drive car. over there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the Elsa road trip across the country just to test just to people. Coast, let's coast say to office. coast. That'd be a great reality show. I'd watch that. Yep.
2: Watch the <laughs>
1: heck out of that. <laughs> Now everyone's like, so when the pandemic is over, I'm going to volunteer to drive Elsa around the country.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Rent an RV and
1: yes, we're down. <laughs>
0: Knock on people's doors. Hi, I'm here to tell you what you did wrong.
1: <laughs> I'm here to give you the good word about how to not be an ableist fuckwit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we have pamphlets.
1: <laughs> oh, God.
3: And I broke the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> it happens occasionally. It was something I was thinking about while you were talking is, is the opportunity to have magic that creates a space that is responsive to the character. So like, depending on how powerful you wanted that to be, like, is there a magical library that sort of senses when someone comes in with some kind of disability and adjusts itself accordingly? Like, Oh, these stairs are now a ramp and now there are handrails or so- I'm going to light up things that you need or yeah like there's
0: just there's
1: all the shelves go lower yeah yeah all the shelves sort of shift down and another responsive magic thing this is one of the things that I always wished would have happened in the golden compass book like I wish Philip Pullman had done this what if a blind person had their had their demon turn into a service dog like what if when they went to puberty their their demon was like oh, I guess I need to be your guide dog now or your guide panther, that would be so much cooler. Or like <clears throat> that kind of a thing, because in the TV show, there was actually somebody who had a German shepherd and it was clearly like their police dog. And I mean, I was like, I don't like how, you know, carceral this is, but man, wouldn't it be cool if this were actually a useful service animal instead of a police dog? Like That would be great. So that's the kind of stuff that you have the opportunity to do. If you have a spirit a spirit animal or a demon or a Patronus that's like attached to you and you have a disabled body, why isn't it adapting to your disabled body?
3: That even goes back to, you know, to mythology and Odin and his ravens who go out and see for him and, and wolves. <laughs> and wolves. And yes. And they come back and they tell him what they've seen. So he can even, you know, he's yeah. It's, all kinds of possibilities
1: that you can play with or you know um you know <clears throat> oh what i need help now luke of this is luke the one with the silver hand who has the silver hand in irish mythology mm. nuata nuata yeah Pronouncing correctly but it's spelled Nuada. <laughs> so like forges their own silver hand like and it's part of the mythology there are a whole bunch of mythological gods who are also disabled
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and so often we don't think of it as um disability but in many ways it is the way that there are limits on gods or mythical creatures or things like that like you have like you have to you know the um there are a lot of Irish mythologies about like silkies and like water women as well. And it's like, and if you touch them, that's, that's too painful for them to bear. And so they have to just go back to the ocean and it's like, okay, you can kind of read that as a chronic pain disorder in some ways. Or it's you
1: know, kind or of you steal my hot. skin. If you steal my skin and prevent me from being able to shift, like that skin is actually an adaptive aid. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, all of you, all of you who are listening, you're actually writing disability narratives.
2: Congratulations.
0: <laughs> You've been doing Didn't it even the know whole it. time.
2: I weren't even Rise. thinking about it. So I feel like we're coming up on an hour, and even though we could probably go on for, for quite a few more <laughs> rounds of breaking the podcast, <laughs> I think we want to have time to give Elsa <laughs> an opportunity to give us a, a bit of world-building trivia to add to our our second world that we have here.
1: Right. Well, what I have for you is guide wyverns.
0: Ooh. Tell Tell me me
1: more, tell me more. Tell us more. So this is a thing that's actually going to be in a project of mine at some point, but it will also be in your world. There are blind people who have guide wyverns. They are about the size of a Labrador. They come in a variety of colors. They tend to to their humans because that's just kind of what they do. They hatch when they're needed and they sort of more or less are hybrid cat, dog dragons. You know, they are the kind of creature that will 100% slither into your picnic basket and eat all of the sausages and, and the cheese. And, you know, they're very food motivated. They're extremely food motivated, um, which is why you have to train them because otherwise they will just continue to snack on everything that they can get their little jaws on. Um, so yeah, they're Labrador-sized, maybe a little smaller depending on how big you are. You want you know a properly sized one. They wear harnesses. Um, you, they don't actually fly. They're not like fully flying wyverns because if they were, you wouldn't be able to work with them. But they can glide. They can hover, um, which is useful because, you know, if you're blind and you can't really see things on a high shelf, your guide wyvern can fly up to the highest, you know, bookshelf in your library and get that Braille book off the shelf for you. Um, So they do also provide certain service tasks, which a regular Labrador can't. So that's what you got, guide wyverns. Any questions about guide wyverns? Love it. I love I it. Love
2: it. I, I have a question actually. Is the the training and communication with a guide wyvern similar to with a guide dog, or are there differences in the training and the communication?
1: Well, for deafblind guide wyvern users, they're actually telepathic, or at least they mm, can. Excellent. Um, you know, most people like to use verbal communication because, again, you want to get their attention, they're distractible. And you really don't want them setting things on fire. So you do want to train them with an anti-fire breathing command that's very important. <laughs> um, but they can be telepathic. And certainly, if you're deaf and also blind, that's a useful skill to work with them on. I,
0: I was going to ask if they breathe fire or not. So that's, They that's really sure
1: fun. do. Because every disabled <laughs> person really, really wants a fire breathing dragon. <laughs> I sure
0: do. Uh, so that's just useful for starting up the stove. Start, you know, it, it's got it's got a wide variety of applications.
1: So many applications, many of which I probably shouldn't mention on air.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm also picturing like weaponizing their snacking ability if there's someone who's irritating you and just taking yeah, the livern in, being like, "Oh no, can't do a thing with him." Eat
1: more. Eat more.
3: <laughs> you
1: know, I I don't know, if you're the kind of person who likes to tie a blind person's shoelaces together, I wouldn't lay odds against dragon not eating your lunch. That's fair. That seems more lunch than fair. Lunch if you're true. lucky. Yeah. Lunch <laughs> if you're lucky. Your hand might be more likely. Like,
3: we didn't define what lunch meant. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> He's interpreted lunch differently than you interpreted
1: lunch. <laughs> Dragons do have a wide variety of tastes. Yeah, every time I bring up the Guide Wyverns on Twitter, people get real excited. So um,
0: It's a lot it's of fun.
1: an expansion on what I'm talking about. <laughs> Excellent. They shall now be multi, multi-world Guide yes. Wyverns. I figure the more worlds that the Guide Wyverns inhabit, the more fun it is and, you know... Look for my eventual project, but
2: they are in.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for bestowing them upon us. I'm I'm excited for them. Yes.
2: And thank you for being with us this evening, Elsa. It has been a delight talking to you and Absolute getting your joy. take on all of this. So it's been it's been fantastic. And really please feel free to come back anytime uh, to talk about any world building that you would like to talk about.
1: I would be including delighted.
2: burlesque and obscenity. Just, just I remember. would be
1: more than happy to come back and talk about obscenity law with you at some point. I, I...
3: keep suggesting profanity as a topic. <laughs>
1: well, you, want, you want Fran Wilde for profanity. She does a really mm. great profanity and secondary world's class. But I will come and talk to you about how obscenity laws get built because, oh, it's
0: fun. <laughs> I still so want that episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on the
2: books for 2021. <laughs> That sounds fantastic. Well, and on that note, I think that we will leave that teaser hanging in the air and, um, <laughs> and sign off for the evening. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming.
3: For listening to this episode of World Building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on September 30th, when we'll be discussing strategies for the reluctant world builder with our friend Mike Chen. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you have questions or if you just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter at worldbuildcast. And our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast, we would love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build till it hurts.